Oh, yeah. I got a raise. Y'all, I got a raise. Hell yeah. yeah. I actually did, too. That's nice. That's yeah, nice. You love to uh, see it. It's for, <laughs> it's for a project that's starting in a couple weeks. I've been doing it for five years and had been working at the same rate for a while. So gotcha. uh, I was like, hey, can I get a raise uh, of about 40%? And they were like, oh, okay. And because it's like kind of pe- it's, it's <laughs> nice. piecework in that like I, I charge based on each individual project. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually in, in this particular case works out for me because I work much faster than I think that the person thinks I do. Uh, mm. and I so, see. There's a meta, there's a meta strategy happening here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I managed to, to get what well, it's like there, the projects take like 10 to 20 minutes and I used to get $10 per, and now I get 15 and then, uh, what then there's like the, the slightly harder projects that are anywhere between like 10 and 30 minutes and i got 25 for those so i don't know nice I mean, that, that comes out to almost 50 dollars an hour usually so that's pretty good that's not bad yeah i just showed up to work monday morning and i checked my phone uh my work email on my phone and an email went out to all the drivers and it was like you've all been given a two dollar raise congratulations <laughs> <laughs> and i was like yeah, all right. You know, it's it's base pay. Quit. Yeah, well, that's the thing. We've been having really, really high turnover recently. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that was what prompted it. And now I'm like, this turnover has been fucking up my idea that I need to figure out where everybody drinks or where everybody hangs out right. otherwise. But uh, now I'm starting to think, well, if the situation is this dire, maybe there are some other factors I can gravitate towards. Yeah. And get a kernel of a thing going. But I don't want to talk too much on that. Let's keep that <laughs> let's keep that on the DL. That's in the back fair. pocket, yeah. Yeah, I, in the back pocket. I just thought it was <laughs> funny because we, we were talking about how you said there's like these like business people furiously trying to squash like municipal internet near mm-hmm. you. Why when I was because I was just at home visiting my folks in Maine and like while I was there, I just had like you know, before I went to bed, like I was on YouTube on my phone. And it's like, oh, you're in Maine. We'll start giving you Maine ads. And so the first <laughs> ad I get is, so they've been trying for like the past couple of years to set up a publicly owned utility in the state because the main utility for most of the state, Central Maine Power, is literally the worst rated utility provider in the country. And if you've ever Worse talked to anyone who, who uses utilities, which is everyone, mm-hmm. nobody likes their fucking utility provider. So being the worst among those tells you something. Yeah, that's impressive. I mean, and so, to be compared to a, an entirely separate grid that goes down at the at the even mere look of cold or super yeah. hot weather in, in Texas and have it this be worse mm-hmm. than that, that's impressive. Yeah, and so, but the ad is just like... Oh, if you have publicly owned utilities, then they'll be at the whim of politicians and <laughs> they'll be unaccountable. I'm like, what? You're describing the current setup. What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> yeah, except instead of the whims of politicians who are at least nominally like you can vote against them, it's just corporate overlords who will keep sucking money out of their enterprise until right. they die in a gold coffin or whatever yeah but it's, it's just like ridiculous the sort of like propaganda they use for that stuff it was a pretty slickly put together ad but it's just like i don't know how effective this is going to be because like 
everyone hates the power company. Like, yeah. I don't know how you're supposed to make this sound worse than the company everyone already hates. <laughs> <laughs> but more yeah. importantly, before we get know. into the yeah. actual show, That's I right. just wanted real quick to shout out the Panama striker folks. Because, like, we just talked about them last week, so I don't want to do, like, a whole thing on it. But they did win two more of their key demands, which is fucking dope. That's they got, a total of four of eight now, right? Or yes. It, they got yeah. the education budget increased to 6% of GDP and an agreement to put price caps on the most commonly used medicines. But unfortunately, they did announce today that now the capitalists are very mad about <laughs> those agreements. Oh, boo-hoo. And oh, so man. they've been pressuring the government to go back on them <laughs> and threatening. They're like, oh, you're going to put price caps on this stuff we sell? Then we just won't we'll sell out our current stock and we won't restock anymore. Oh yeah. You love not making money. That's one thing <laughs> right. I know about capitalists right. is they love not selling the things they're supposed to be selling. Yeah. They're just like, we're going to do a capital strike. It's like, eh, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah. I fucking doubt it. Also, how, how cool is it to have an education budget pegged to GDP? I don't know how good 6% right? is, but like just pegging it to GDP is a pretty slick move. I got to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I just love that. Like, the the strikers in Panama are just like they've because they've got those four demands which are all those are big wins like those would be big mm-hmm. wins if we got those here oh yeah and still like now the the government's kind of waffling on it they're not like well you know it's a negotiation we gotta take some good and some bad they've just come out and be like oh yeah these guys are trying to fuck around back in the streets yeah also <laughs> we have four more demands still like that's the thing yeah. we're not ready to go back on anything yet we have four more demands and then maybe you give us some more before we start negotiating so to speak <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it just rules and it's like one of those things i'm like i wish more places were talking about hell this yeah. strike because like this is the sort of energy we need everywhere well, it's crazy how this stuff happens in countries all over the world. Like we saw the biggest mobilization of workers maybe ever in India and very few people outside of like weird leftist nerds were talking about it. And even among weird leftist nerds, hardly anybody paid like real close attention, you know? So it's wild. There's real life examples out there. If you're not too busy trying to figure out which flag to put in your bio. (laughs) Well, That's the the work stoppage promise. We look into these, these strikes and and big actions that are making big impacts around the world. I mean, we did try to do our best to cover the, the strike in India or the mini strikes in India. And then, you know, Panama and uh, all of the things going on. We, we do our best here. Yeah, we sure do. Speaking of doing our best, I guess I'll do my best uh, intro to the show. listener-supported Revolutionary Labor Podcast. So thank you so much for any money you might be giving us on Patreon. We really appreciate it. Uh, Get in the Discord if you're not already. It's free and fun. If you are a patron and you would like stickers, but you do not have stickers yet, you can message us on Patreon. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or you can leave a zero-star review of something you ordered on Wish and just mention to listen to Work Stop 
edge. <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, our first uh, thing that we're going to be covering today is we're going back to follow up on the Indiana Grad Students Union, where they have actually gotten some of their demands met, uh, partially in from fear of the administration of the strike that's coming when the the school year starts. So these grad students, as we've talked about, have been organizing and doing actions for over three years, and uh, and this is one of the first times that that they've really actually gotten concessions, or at least uh, like major concessions from the administration. So like back on August second, the union announced that they had won uh, the end of course specific fees, which were basically one of the things that were just taking out of their pay. They were being forced to pay for literally working like oh you get to work here how about we charge you to do that and so the uh $1,435 mandatory per worker fee was uh gotten rid of uh there was also an increase to the minimum stipend from $15,000 to $22,000 um, but you know, as expected, the administration is trying to take all of the credit for this, and as they always do in in every single situation, the bosses are like, "Oh, look how great and benevolent we are." Uh, but in reality, we know that this is because of the demands of the workers. But the we we had uh, one of the one of the people in the administration say uh, basically calling for labor peace because they're so scared, and said, "I hope the naysayers see and realize that the that action can happen." When our existing structures and administration work hand in hand, basically at the same time of saying we did this by ourselves, d- the in the l- the longer version of the statement, never acknowledging that the union e- even exists, which is one of the things that the Indiana, the University of Indiana, has been basically denying the existence of the union the entire time. Yeah, I mean, the phrase existing structures is really doing a lot of heavy lifting in terms of obfuscating the importance of the union in that statement. Uh, but then you do have statements from uh, organizers themselves. We have one here from a graduate student organizer, Katie Shy, who said in response to the concessions from the administration, quote, we are just really pleased that our years-long demand to end the fees and to raise salaries for grad workers on campus has finally been met. We know this is going to have a really tangible impact on the lives of so many of our members, and let them conduct their research and live their lives with less anxiety and more dignity. Which, I mean, yeah, that's awesome. She also said uh, that these actions were prompted by the threat of another labor strike in the fall, calling this evidence of what an organized collective effort by graduate workers can accomplish, which is the real lesson to be taken away f- uh, from this situation, is that, yes, it's good to get these things, but you always have to remember where they came from, which is strikes and threats of strikes and, uh, and other labor actions. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's 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 no coincidence that, you know, these workers have been organizing for several years now. They got to the point where they were able to organize a massive strike last during the spring semester and have been poised to continue that strike in the fall semester. And their earlier strike won the support of basically the entire faculty to the point that it actually started to drive a wedge between the faculty and the administration, which... I do think is also a, a testament to the good tactics of the, the grad student workers. Mm-hmm. But it's like, so all that happens, and then suddenly the university drops their 
objection to lower to removing these fees and raises the minimum stipend by 50%. Like they didn't just do that out of the kindness of their hearts because of the, you know, the, how much they love the quote unquote existing structures. It's like, yeah, yeah. Y- you only did this because the, the grad student workers are flexing their power and you're fucking terrified that their strike in the fall is going to force you to recognize them. No, no, no. This is just the day we were going to give you these uh, things anyway. Look, I've had it marked on my <laughs> Dilbert calendar for a year and a half. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this this rocks. This is uh, the fruits of of organizing work by these graduate student workers. And honestly, I, like it's because it's funny because I'm sure that the administration, like when they were, you know, game planning this out at their meetings, were like, okay, this is how we're going to undermine the union. We're going to do these couple of things that they asked for, and then tell them, look, see, you don't need a union. You can get these things, and then some of their people will stop supporting it, and they won't be able to have a strike. But it's like. I don't know. They just did a whole strike during the spring semester. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a lot easier to to talk to the fellow grad students and be like, Hey, look what all our hard work accomplished. If we keep it up, imagine what more we can accomplish. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's really as easy as them. I mean, they have the solidarity from doing it once. They just get to look at each other and be like, uh, go for two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So well done by the Indiana grad student workers and uh, looking forward to see what, you know, further wins they're able to get because I really highly doubt that this is going to have the effect of blunting the union drive. Yeah, well, and and additionally in education news, uh, Boston teacher, the Boston Teachers Union have used their uh, kind of rank and file mobilization that they've been working on to actually provide a win that really exemplifies what unions are capable of doing that is way beyond uh, just general like like general working conditions and and wages. And so one of the things that they have gotten by working uh, without, I mean, they've been working without a contract for for ten months and. Uh, they have ratified a, a, an agreement that will actually go to vote uh, in September where uh, they've gotten public housing for homeless students. Like, this is exactly what we talk about when we talk about bigger demands and the ways in which these rank-and-file movements can actually get wins, not just for the workers, but for the communities on whole. And not to say that I mean, obviously, I guess maybe the phrasing there is a little confusing because the workers are part of the community. The workers are, uh, when they do better, the community does better. But but this also is a, a form of solidarity with some of the, the people who are uh, left at the margins of society. Yeah, I mean, this story is great. And this is coming out of a piece in Liberation News. And I think, like, it really exemplifies the power of rank-and-file organizing because, you know, there are plenty of good contracts won by more business unionist like teachers unions that win good raises and win decent like benefits changes. But like, that's one of the things we see so often from even like not the most conservative, but still kind of business union people where they're like, look, we need to focus on bread and butter issues. And what they mean is wages and benefits. And, and those things are important, no doubt. But this is such a good look at like the, how much broader the power of unions can be when you actually get the whole rank and file involved, because it's like you can expand 
your horizons of what a union can accomplish if you get everybody involved with it and you acknowledge like like a the because this is a group of 10,000 educators you know in, in one of the bigger cities in the country and it's like of course we want them to have better wages and benefits for sure like teachers provide an incredibly important service they should have good wages they should have good benefits like all workers should but like this is such a good example of, of not only like why rank and file methods are important for rebuilding the union movement, but why rebuilding the union movement is so central to any movement for socialism or communism, anarchism, whatever your, your ultimate, you know, left wing policy goal is. Because like, as we've talked about on the show a million times, the, the way that we see business unionists approach things like this, you know, student homelessness, other community issues, they're like, we need to get people to donate to our political action fund so we can fund Democrats who aren't going to do any of this shit. <laughs> and then nothing happens. But that, but like these workers were able to come at this and actually get these incredible wins in their own contract because of this sort of organizing. And I think that's like incredible because like they mentioned in here, it, the, this language was included in their contract. It says, Quote, the city of Boston and BPS, uh, Boston Public Schools, are partners in a pilot program to house homeless families of 165 students in Boston schools with plans to scale that up at the end of the pilot period to house the families of up to 4,000 homeless students. We will work together with the pilot partners with the goal of eliminating homelessness for families of students in Boston schools within five years. That like, wow. is a cool five-year plan. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely like that shit rules like is this the thing we we spent so much money out there like we gotta vote for progressive democrats we gotta vote for democrats gotta vote for democrats i have never seen a program this ambitious to deal with the absolute disgrace of the amount of people who are homeless in this country and this wasn't won by a bourgeois political party this was won by a union which no, is exactly I mean, why this shit is so important. The Democrats would never do this. No ruling party would ever allow any like legislation to actually end homelessness in the country. And so once again, you have unions who have to fight. I mean, it's a testament to the power of a union that they can fight for things that to, to eradicate things that should not exist right. like homelessness and lack of access to medicine and, and all kinds of other things. But it's also just like, I, it's really a testament to the power of these unions that when you go and you fight directly, it's like you can actually eliminate homelessness for thousands of people at a time just by collectively bargaining. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like child homelessness is on the rise right now. Like that is that is a real crisis that we are facing and is going to continue to be exacerbated in our current conditions. I mean, with inflation the way it is, there's a lot of people just being left on the on the on the margins to basically just b barely survive if that. Um, and I mean, for the teachers themselves, they've won a uh, retroactive 3% uh, raise over the 2021-2022 uh, school year, which is not only, I mean, like that's awesome. But in addition to that, over the next two years, they have a raise coming of about nine and a half percent by September of 2023. So they are actually not only getting these really great supports for the community, but they're also getting these important uh, wage increases in the face of inflation uh, from the in their contract as well. It's not like they have to, you know, put one over the other. Their actual power as a rank and file union has gotten all of it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and like the, the, the specific wins that they've made, particularly this are like direct outpourings of the rank and file process itself. So they, they actually, uh, used a rank and file method to elect members to the bargaining committee to help determine their contract priorities. And then they also held community listening sessions and conducted intentional outreach programs to community organizations to make sure that they reached out to parents, students, and the community at large, and that their needs could be reflected in the union's demands as well, which is great because like we talk a lot about how communities need to support unions, but a big part of that and something that gets a lot of that out of the way is when the union just goes to the community themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And like the other thing like to like to because this just stands in such contrast, I think, to when we hear about negotiations in so many of the other so many other unions, because like the the negotiating team prepared summaries after each bargaining session to inform the members of what was going on in those they had contract action teams and building representatives at each school to make sure that the whole membership was informed of what was going on during the negotiations that everyone was involved everyone had all the information on what was going on during the contract campaign and so like as you know they start to get some pushback during the negotiations they're able to mobilize the entire membership to have like uh, to they had a thing where they had like wear it Wednesdays where they had everybody coming in wearing T-shirts or like stickers that had sp- the specific contract demands they were fighting for on it as like basically a show of solidarity. Yeah, so, this reminds me a lot of the rank and file episode that we did covering the core organizing. Yeah. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. there's a lot of parallels there in the outreach to the community and and just like the the showing these um these structure tests of like the, I mean, the wear it Wednesday is literally like a weekly structure test of the union. It's very impressive. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Like the, this is, it is, it's such a contrast to when you see like, like when we talked about like, even say like the UAW last year with like the John Deere strike, the strikes at Volvo truck, where they had a, a very small team of lawyers and negotiators from the international union who came that there we're going to go handle the negotiations. We're going to be sequestered in a, like a hotel conference room right. with the representatives from the business. We'll do all the negotiations. And we'll just bring you a tentative agreement and expect you to sign it and not talk to you about it at all. Not actually go to the membership and find out what their needs are. And this is just the complete opposite of that. And you see like, the things that they're able to win from it. And it's just, I think it's just the perfect example of like, we, we want rank and file organizing methods because we want there to be democracy in the workplace, but also because they're just a lot more effective mm-hmm. at, at getting the things that workers and communities need from these things. And so like we have like a, a teacher, Amy Gibo. Uh, or Gabo, I'm, I'm not sure, who said that additional priorities for the next contract, which that's another great thing, already planning for the next contract. Like, the, you love to see the, the, the foresight there, focusing on things like uh, inclusion in learning and a commitment to improving school buildings and facilities, which is, of course, something that is important across the country, especially mm-hmm. for things like, you know, improved ventilation. And so there, we have a, a final quote here from... Uh, another union member, uh, Chelsea uh, Ruscio, who said, my hope for our next contract, we do an even better job of building solidarity with both families and students and show that we can fight for and win things like no evictions during the school year for BPS families. Hell yeah. And I mean, like, 
again, this is just a tentative agreement so far, which means that Boston Public Schools has said, yeah, we'll we'll do this, but it still needs to go to a vote, which will happen in September. And uh, and but I mean, like with all of these immense wins, unless for some reason the the membership, the rank and file membership is like, no, we need to fight for more, which is right. also would also be like fucking rad. But I mean, sure. like this is a really good contract. And I, I, I kind of expect that this will pass. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so moving on to our next story, this is one people, uh, if you follow a lot of labor Twitter, you may have seen the, this one going around. I saw a lot of mostly good takes, but also some weird ones on. So folks may re- who've listened to us for a while may recall the, that the, the longest running strike in the country right now is the warrior met coal strike where workers in Alabama have been on strike for it's 400 and something days. Now I'm not sure of the exact count, but it's like it's over 16 months. It's insane that they've had to be on strike this long. And now there has come a ruling from the uh, regional NLRB board down in uh, the Alabama area. This is the region 10 board where they have declared that the UMWA, you know, the mine workers who have been on strike, that they have to pay Warrior Met, the company, $13.3 million for damages, quote-unquote, caused to the company by the strike. Okay. How about no? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's basically been most people's reaction, which is the correct reaction. And, like... The whole thing is 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 wild. So what this stems from is back in June, the basically the company accused several members of the UMWA and the union itself of participating in illegal picketing. Basically, because we we reported last year a few times on some of the the you know the picketing tactics that UMWA was trying to roll out because the company has been bringing in scabs the whole time. And so the UMWA has been trying to figure out, okay, what can we do legally that will actually make our picketing effective? And of course, the bourgeois political system, including the court system, has been doing everything to use injunctions and all sorts of other shit to undermine that. And so they did things like they would they blockaded some of the entrances using cars and things like that. But we talked about that on some past episodes. But so stemming from that, the company accused the union of illegal picketing. And so uh, in order to basically just say, look, we don't want to run our our union members and their families through a whole incredible, a whole long fucking trial about this and have them get interrogated on the stands by, you know, aggressive lawyers, whatever. You think we did some illegal picketing when we like blockaded this thing? How, what, what, then they gave them, okay, fine. We'll pay for whatever stupid nominal cost that is and we'll just move on. Well, and, and it was t- estimated pretty low initially. Yes. Yeah, initially the estimate for the damages at the time and the reason they agreed to the settlement was that the cost was going to be like about $400,000, which is, of course, a lot of money, but it's not $13 million. Right. And so the things that they're including are also insane. Yeah, like, so they've basically, the company took that settlement and is arguing that what that meant is that the union agreed to pay for any and all quote again, quote unquote, damages caused to the company during the strike, not just this, you know, instance of elite, so, so-called illegal picketing. So they're basically just put together a bill for all of the unmined coal that they haven't gotten because of the fact that the workers have been on strike and sent that to them. It's 
it's just it completely flies in the face of the purpose of even having strikes like I mean, like the so the UMWA, like their their president Cecil Roberts, put out a statement saying this is a slap in the face, not just to the workers who are fighting for better jobs at Warrior Met Coal, but to every worker who stands up to their boss anywhere in America. There are charges for security, cameras, capital expenditures, buses for transporting scabs across picket lines, and the cost of lost production. What is the purpose of a strike if not to impact the operations of the employer, including production? Is it now the policy of the federal government that unions be required to pay a company's losses as a consequence of their members exercising their rights as working people? This is outrageous and effectively negates workers' rights to strike. It cannot stand. I mean, I yeah. The security cameras, like the the little like repressive apparatus, like the surveillance apparatus that the company uses on like to to do the union busting itself is being charged to the union yeah, yeah. They, they want them to pay for the buses to bring the scabs there i mean it's it's outrageous and i mean he hit the uh umwa hit the nail right on the head when they said what is the purpose of a strike if not to impact the operations right. of the employer. I mean, it's just that simple. And so, I mean, we could go back and forth about whether it was smart to get like locked into this agreement in the first place, but this brazen attempt by the company to try and just like throw a $13.3 million uh, invoice towards the union is not just like insanely disrespectful, but also should be illegal, maybe technically is i'm not sure (laughs) yeah i mean it's more or less saying that strikes are illegal right yeah because because i've seen people be like online be like well i mean this is really the union's fault for accepting the settlement i'm like well as you said like we can argue about whether that was a good idea but that's really immaterial because like the whole concept that you could whether there's a settlement of any kind that you could charge the union for the cost of a strike that they're doing. The whole reason you would do that is to destroy the, the ability of strikes to work. Like the, the point is to suppress and destroy unions. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, thankfully like the UMWA is saying they're not going to accept the ruling. They're not going to just, you know, turn over for this. And like, uh, he, like they put out another, like another statement saying we have no intention of paying its costs for doing so, meaning running the strike. The right to strike in America must be preserved. We will fight this at every level, in every court. We will spend every penny of our resources rather than give in to something like this from the NLRB, Warrior Met, or any other entity. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I I can't imagine that, like, this can, this, the UM, the, the mine workers are such a, a strong group of people, and I imagine that this is going to just, if anything, light a fire under this strike and be like, no, this can no longer stand, and now we're even more invigorated by the fact that, like, the state is, I mean, so I guess I, I read through this, but it wasn't quite clear to me, is that the NLRB said uh, that that the $13 million is the correct number and that there's yes. going to have to be, wow. And and yeah. so they're going to have to actually, like, what, basically do an appeal to the national NLRB at this point? I, I believe that's the next, like, step in the legal process, yes. So, so I, I do think, because this is a ruling by a regional board, I believe the national body can overturn it. And I think that's the 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 hope right now mm-hmm. is that they'll come back and say no, this was an unreasonable ruling. Like the original estimate was four hundred thousand dollars. That's 
If, if, if you are actually charging somebody for illegal picketing, that's a more reasonable amount. This $13 million is ridiculous. You can't do that. Um, but, I mean, who, who knows? I mean, we'll see. It, it's, I don't want to take for granted that any part of the United States government is going to make a, you know, a logical ruling that makes sense if it's going to help workers, even the NLRB. So, yeah. I mean... Thankfully, we, we were already seeing, you know, solidarity from other unions. I know I saw Sarah Nelson, you know, from the, the flight attendants uh, union put out a, a statement in solidarity with the UMWA. And then uh, on Friday, the Teamsters put out like a, a statement. For, uh, Secretary Treasurer Fred Zuckerman said, quote, should this ruling by Region 10 be upheld? Every American worker is on notice that the federal government of the United States has turned its back on you. Yeah, I mean, like, uh it it already has but i mean like this <laughs> yeah. is more on its face like sh- you can you can show maybe even a more liberal like person in politics that suddenly strikes are illegal and how fucked up that is yeah absolutely so solidarity with umwa absolutely and uh speaking of liberal politics let's talk about the democrats uh so <laughs> oh boy <laughs> the democrats actually i mean to be precise one democrat and two republicans have introduced a bill recently uh this is hr 8442 otherwise known as the worker flexibility and choice act uh and you know oh just boy. if you've listened to this show for any amount of time you should know that flexibility and choice are not necessary especially when proposed by politicians or companies are definitely Definitely not the things that workers actually need in their lives. And so if you want to know what actually this legislation would do, it would permanently enshrine the status of workers for gig companies like Uber, DoorDash, Lyft, you know, Instacart, whatever. And it would amend the Fair Labor Standards Act so that employee does not include them, but they would be given some legal protections. And those legal protections are, of course, privacy, non-discrimination, non-harassment non-retaliation and safety, uh, plus time off under the Family and Medical uh, Leave Act. And those are all things that workers do need, but they're not wage guarantees. They're not benefits packages. And they're certainly not the things that you would be given when you are uh, classified properly as an employee of a company. And so this just really represents another effort in a long line of efforts from both Democrats and Republicans to try and figure out a way to make the corporate you know, board at Uber, Lyft, and Instacart happy with the way that they're allowed to uh, grossly misclassify hundreds of thousands of employees around the world, I guess probably just thousands in the U.S. (laughs) Yeah, well, and this also effectively makes it illegal to form a union in gig Mm -hmm. work because then you're doing uh, price fixing or or some sort of collusion. Uh, And so this is effectively removing the right to organize not that the right to organize necessarily exists because gig workers are still subject to those laws but what this does is it enshrines in law the it codifies that gig workers may not form unions yeah well and it, it yeah it does that and then it also adds a tier of workers that's between what we think of as gig work now and a regular employee and it, you know just going off the history of things we've seen on this show, whenever they try to separate workers into more and more tiers, it's always a fucking bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, functionally, this is basically a national prop 22. Yes. Like attempting to just copy paste the awful, you know, shit that got through 
after hundreds of millions of dollars of propaganda by Uber and Lyft in California and to make it so that it would supersede the ability because it'd be a federal law of any of the states to try and do like some of the stuff that the California just recently did with their AB five bill, which would, which restricts the ability of companies to misclassify their employees. And so this would just be like, no, no, you can't do that. This is a federal decision. Right. And so of course you have the, the supporters of this bill, you know, trotting out the standard stupid bullshit about how workers just want to be flexible and they don't want, you know, the government to take that away from them. (laughs) And, and, and workers are so much happier when they work independently Whatever the hell that means. Right. And <laughs> like, then their their evidence for this, of course, uh, you have Representative Henley Queller. Cooler. Yeah, I don't know how to say his like last that. name, um, but he I has don't been, respect him, so we should not look up. How yeah, to say so it. fuck it. He's a he's the Democrat from Texas who uh, helped introduce this bill, and he keeps trotting out a study from MBO Partners that says workers are happier working independently. The thing about MBO Partners is that they are a consulting firm that provides services to. Uh, the Coalition for Workforce Innovation, which is a lobbying group that lobbies for Uber and Lyft uh, oh and the staffing company <laughs> Kelly Services, Inc. But we all know all staffing companies are basically the same. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a bill written by gig companies with evidence supported by evidence put together by gig companies right. and put into Congress by a politician owned by gig companies. Right. And then when he introduced the bill, he said, quote, the bipartisan worker flexibility and choice act is important to ensure that our gig economy has the room and resources to expand. Uh, (laughs) I, I love subsidizing the economy, the part of the economy that's supposed to prove how good laissez-faire capitalism is. That's my favorite. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I don't want the gig economy to expand. I want it to cease to be. Yeah. I want it to shrink and die. (laughs) Please. I want all the workers currently employed as gig workers to be reclassified properly as employees and be given the same rights to minimum wage, to bargain for a union, to have, if you are in a state that provides for sick leave, it, really that should be every state, but you know, it should have all of those benefits and not this stupid bullshit that they supposedly get flexibility out of whatever the hell that means. Right. Uh, so uh, the thing about this legislation is nobody's really sure if it actually will pass these, these prop 22 style bits of legislation have been very contentious everywhere that they've been put up. And you even have guys like Mark spring, who's a partner at CDF labor law, LLP who represents management. Uh, and, uh, he called it a good starting point towards the middle ground and continuing worker classification battles. Uh, but he also said he doubts it will uh, pass if labor groups oppose it, which, <laughs> Any labor group worth their salt will oppose it. Uh, But he said, quote, given the uh, makeup of Congress, meaning majority Democrat, and the position President Biden has with respect to unions, it would make it difficult to get it through Congress and signed by Biden. To which I only have to say, this guy's giving Biden a lot of credit for being invested (laughs) in unions. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. this is like, oh, Biden is so great with unions, when in reality, we have not seen that at all. I mean, maybe you would think Biden was a union guy if you represented management, but even then I feel like you would still have the skills to see right through it and you just have to like repeat the lie because it's a useful lie for you to tell. Yeah, I I think it's relatively unlikely that it will pass, but who knows? I mean, both parties, and it's not because I think both parties oppose it. I don't think, I, I think 
there's plenty of Democrats who'd be happy to vote for it. I think they would just be worried about the optics of it at the current moment. Mm -hmm. But like, even if this current iteration doesn't pass, they're going to keep trying to pass this sort of shit. And like, uh, and, and there are plenty of people because you, you pulled a bunch of good quotes in here from folks who are actually assessing the bill correctly. Like, I mean, there's a professor. Uh, this is a uh, Vina Dubal, who's a professor at UC Hastings College of Law, who specifically their work studies the gig economy, who said this federal bill would effectively get rid of minimum wage and overtime compensation in one swoop. The idea is that in exchange, a worker would get, quote, flexibility associated with gig work. But this is a false dichotomy. Workers should have flexibility and a wage floor, and they can under an employment model. I love quote. that. I, I love. I also love the phrase "wage floor." I mean, it just mm -hmm. says everything you need to say in two words. Yeah. I mean that. Yeah, because flexibility is usually what. So, like, if you're sick or you need a different schedule or you have like a kind of a hectic life, you can mm -hmm. kind of reschedule things. That's like what it means. But really, what flexibility means to these companies is our ability to just shift people around and and you know use those as kind of a, a, a like a fake version of flexibility. It's flexibility right. for the company only. Right. Well, and yeah. Sean O'Brien cuts right to the heart of the matter when he says, "Quote: The bill isn't about worker flexibility." It's a contortion to let corporations deny workers' rights, protected wages, and job security, which... Correct. Yeah, utterly correct. <laughs> yeah, and so we've got some more, like, I mean, John Samuelson, who's the president of the Transport Workers Union, said, claiming this bill provides anyone other than the bosses any benefit is a bold-faced lie. Also correct. Mm -hmm. William Gold, professor emeritus at Stanford Law School, who was a former chairman of the NLRB, said... The gig companies have been quite successful in convincing most of the American and Western countries public that flexibility can only be an alternative to employee status, <laughs> which I do think is a, a good examination of sort of the like ideological battle being waged like by the, these companies. Mm -hmm. And then finally, Laura Padden, who's the director of the work structures for the National Employment Law Project, said this would particularly impact people of color who have, for various reasons, fewer work opportunities. Any member of Congress who supports this bill is not for working people. Also correct. Also <laughs> utterly correct. And I mean, once you realize how correct that is, I think it's telling that this legislation has relatively uh, strong bipartisan support <laughs> and was yes. introduced by a coalition of representatives from both major parties. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, oh, if if labor happens to be against this, maybe it won't pass. Like, literally, labor is entirely against it. Yeah, labor is yeah. speaking with one voice on this without even consulting each other first. Like. Which is very rare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't I don't think necessarily this iteration is is likely to pass. But again, I think they're just going to keep introducing shit like this until they find uh, an amenable, you know, legislature to get it through. So we'll definitely be keeping our eye on it, but going to the one story I think we have in here this week where the federal government did something sort of good <laughs> for once, uh, we actually have, so we've talked on this show before uh, a bunch 
about the incredibly difficult work conditions faced by workers at meat processing plants. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, we talked during the pandemic about, you know, the horrific number of workers at poultry plants who, after being labeled as, you know, essential workers, got COVID by, like, droves, hundreds of workers at these facilities died. And these, again, are facilities that largely employ migrant labor mm-hmm. in order to draw, to try and, you know, minimize their labor costs to the point where we've seen, you know, poultry plants where workers have had the gall to even discuss organizing where the CEO will call ice on their own plant to get workers deported, to keep them from forming unions. So this is the, the industry that we're talking about in this story. The, the, the very law abiding and moral industry of poultry processing. But so at the end of July, The Justice Department actually filed a suit in federal court in Maryland against two companies. Uh, Well, several companies, but we're focusing on a couple of them. And then because of the monopolistic way that the industry is set up, they all tie back to a few companies. This is Cargill, Sanderson Farms, and Wayne Farms, along with a data consulting company, uh, Weber, Meng, Saul, and co., saying that basically these companies have been engaged in a multi-year conspiracy to exchange information between them about the wages and benefits that workers at their poultry processing plants get so that they can fix wages and Mm -hmm. drive down employee competition in the marketplace. And like those companies, Cargill, Sanderson Farms, and Wayne Farms, uh, are responsible for hiring 90% of the new workers in the poultry industry. And so just, but I mean, that tells you by itself, the level of consolidation Mm -hmm. and and monopoly that exists within, you know, the meat industry in the U S and that because they, they were just like, well, wait a minute, we control the whole industry. What if we just told each other what we were paying people and agreed not to raise that? (laughs) Right. Well, and it's so funny, too, because like there's four defendants in this suit. It's the three biggest poultry companies. And then it's a it's a um, an information and data analytics company that provides services to all of them. (laughs) So it's like where where could the common connection be? Where's the thread between these companies? It's like it's right there. Yeah. Well, it's like when you see like. Burger King and Wendy's and McDonald's being like, we have the best fries. No, we have the best fries. No, we have the best fries. And all of them buy their potatoes from Lamb Weston. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> real competition. Well, you know, you zoom out far enough on the free market and you notice that it's just like, oh, here's the Nestle constellation and here's the yum yeah. foods constellation. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. And I mean, like looking at the scale of these companies, like Wayne Farms has over 9,000 employees. They sell stuff under their own name, but also under the brand Platinum Harvest, Chef's Craft, Naked Truth, and Lady Bird. Uh, Sanderson Farms, who are based out of Mississippi, have 17,000 employees. Uh, they process 13.6 million chickens per week. These are huge companies. That's and enormous. Like, so what the Justice Department is proposing in their lawsuit is a settlement basically saying, look, you guys are trying to fix prices and have you been defrauding consumers by doing that? And of course, which unfortunately is what they're set they're, they're focusing on is the defrauding of consumers, not right. the, you know, suppressing of their workers wages. And so what they're proposing is 
requiring the companies to pay 80, about $85 million in restitution to the workers affected by the practice. I mean, that's pretty good. Uh, put in a federal monitor selected by the Justice Department to ensure compliance for the next decade. Uh, permit Justice Department lawyers and investigators to inspect the facilities and interview their employees to ensure they are complying with the terms and to resolve allegations that Sanderson and Wayne both treated chicken farmers unfairly by using a system that reduced their pay for low performance. And that was another aspect of this story that I thought was why, because like, I, I mean, I don't, I'll admit, like, I don't know a lot about like the, the econ- economics of how a lot of like agriculture and agribusiness in the U S works. Mm-hmm. And so this window into it, I was really interesting. Like, cause they talk about how the way that, cause basically the way that these companies source their chickens is, <sighs> They basically get farmers to sign long-term contracts where they're like, hey, we'll give you the chickens, we'll give you the feed, you just provide the facilities and you raise them, it'll be great, it's a great bargain. But they run this tournament system, Mm -hmm. as it's called, where like the the farmers don't really know what their pay is going to be until like the end of a season because they're all competing against each other. And if you don't, you know, perform better than average, whatever that ends up being that year, it you are going to get paid a lower wage. And so this ends up being like an incredibly unsustainable system for so many small poultry farmers. Right. And I think it kind of got grandfathered in, in a way, because uh, for a long time, uh, the way that livestock sales were handled, it was basically all auctions. And that mm. makes a fair bit of sense when you don't have one giant monopoly in the region and it's a bunch of like smaller businesses and independent workers trying to to bid for this cow or this chicken or whatever but right. when when you have only one person who's ever going to be buying the poultry from you it becomes right. a black box where they can just tell you what they're going to pay and you have to take it yeah exactly um and so like this you know there are there have been a few more like minor thrusts by the 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 DOJ at actually trying to go after a few of the more egregious monopolies. Not although not really to break them up, just to be like, hey, stop raising prices on consumers by doing this. That's like really seems to be the threat, like the main goal of this, because yeah, Mm -hmm. there is some compensation for workers. There is like, you know, the monitor system to keep them from doing it again. But like, there's nothing in here about like, you actually have to, you know, pay your workers a living wage. You have to provide them benefits to make this a career instead of just a hyper exploited job. It's all about like, you broke the rules, very (laughs) naughty. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I mean, the, the fact that we've been talking about monopolies uh, is really apt here as the uh, suit <laughs> yeah. comes as like Cargill and uh, uh, Continental Grain, uh, which own Wayne Farms, formed a joint venture to acquire Sanderson Farms, which is another <laughs> yeah. huge uh, like food uh, meat processing uh, plant. And the companies plan to combine Sanderson Farms with Wayne Farms uh, to form a new privately held poultry business operating across seven southern states basically just further monopolizing and this is the yep. this is what they will continually do this is just an, an example of of the the general practice that's been going on for a long time coming to a head 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What 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 if our price fixing triopoly was a price fixing duopoly? That would suit us <laughs> yeah. pretty well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, what, oh, we've got Tyson and Purdue and, and like Cargill. What if we just had two of those instead of three? Because that's the thing. It's like when you go to the store to like look for chicken, it's just like it's that, that's the thing that I think is so important to look at when it like Wayne Farm sells chicken under all these different brands. It's like so it's not so much that like there's cause there's, there's, there's all these choices under capitalism. It's the same company selling the same stuff. They just put different fucking packaging on it it's and real, charged it's, you a different price for it. Real, uh, Coke and Pepsi hours. Yeah, absolutely. And so like, there's a quote in here from, uh, Doa Mecki, who is the, a, a principal deputy assistant attorney general for the DOJ's antitrust division who said, through a brazen scheme to exchange wage and benefit information, these poultry processors stiffed competition or stifled competition and harmed a generation of plant workers who faced demanding and sometimes dangerous conditions to earn a living. And so, you know, their goal is to get the companies to agree to this consent decree. And then they have like a 60 day comment period before the thing could be finalized. And so like, I, I wanted to like, we wanted to bring this up just because like, we've talked about how tough it is in the poultry industry. And this is a good illustration of why. And it's, it's good that this, you know, they're going after this, but it, even when the DOJ makes this big move, we're like, look, we're doing antitrust stuff. We're, we're going after the monopolies. Are they breaking up the companies? No. Are they forcing the company to, to pay the workers a living wage? No. Are they forcing them to actually provide safe working conditions instead of dangerous ones? No. Like, it's good that they're making them pay restitution, right. but there's so much more that this should be doing to actually fix the problems in the industry. Yeah. Well, continuing on with problems in industries, we're going to go to uh, a different, I mean, still animal related. Uh, That's right. We're going to be talking about PetSmart, where the company has been, you know, give, providing this great service to the workers, which allows them to get training. Uh, in Speaking of companies that kill animals and abuse their employees, yeah. right. PetSmart. <laughs> yeah, uh, basically there's this, this really important training that is provided by PetSmart, but there is a little caveat in there in that if you leave the company, you have to pay the entire amount for that, that training service. Yeah, Th this, this story is... <sighs> awful <laughs> i hate this story that's like the main reason i put it in here like because we've talked about you know how awful the working conditions are at like PetSmart and petco like the two big pet companies in the u.s PetSmart being the bigger one they're you know by far the biggest pet supply store in the country and so you know one of the things they offer is grooming services for for people's pets and so with when new workers come in they have the opportunity quote unquote opportunity mm -hmm. to be trained at PetSmart's grooming academy which i mean that sounds like oh well, they're actually going to send them someplace they're going to have get professional training and actually get this job skill and and they're told that this is going to have hands-on supervised instruction but in reality this quote-unquote grooming academy is mostly just like a pr thing that it's it's basically like they don't really have an academy for this for most of the workers it's just they're just given a new job requirement of you have to groom these animals, uh, hope you figure it out. <laughs> and then they're charged for training for it. But basically the way that, that it's described is 
we're going to make it so that you have this new skill, but it's a skill that is required to work at PetSmart and not really super transferable anywhere else. Right. And also doesn't really have serious training. And their whole thing is like, look, it's free training. It's going to be a great value to you. But what they don't highlight to workers is that if they leave the company within two years of receiving the training, they are on the hook to pay for that training. And, and the reason for that is they are required to sign. And this is the part that just blew my mind. They are required to sign an, 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 an item called the training repayment agreement provision. Huh, what does that stand for? Trap. <laughs> I cannot believe they literally called what is a trap clause in their contract trap. They just called it trap. <laughs> like, and that's what it is. I just, I continue to marvel that they, I have to imagine there was like some like lawyer, like lawyer trainee or paralegal who was in there like, Oh man, wouldn't it be funny if they actually did this? And then the lawyers just like, didn't change it. <laughs> like, uh, it's ridiculous. And what the provision basically says is if you leave the company before those two years, you will be charged for the cost of the training, which is $5,000. And that's, and, and potentially an additional $500 for the cost of grooming tools. And it, it's not even just if you like quit your job, which would still be bullshit, but if they fire you within two years of you going to this quote unquote academy, they still charge you the fee. It's it's just absolutely wild. It really feels like an incentive to fire people on on month twenty two or twenty three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's like controlled turnover, and also, I mean, there's even when you have a job where there's no clause like this, you're not ever required to pay for training anyway. Like it's understood that it's an industry standard that if your job needs to train you. You're not on the hook for that. They provide that. Right, because the reason they're training you isn't because you're getting some great benefit out of it. It's because that way they'll be able to charge more money for your services and make more profits by exploiting you. <laughs> I mean, and, and a lot of this came out because like workers like uh, Brianne Scally, who is one of the workers who's involved in this class action lawsuit against PetSmart, who left the, the company in September of last year because... Uh, because she was unable to pay her bills because of how low the pay was. So she's just like, look, I can't, I cannot afford to work here. You do not pay me enough. I have to go get another job or I will not be able to pay my rent. And a few months after she left her job, a collections charge of $5,500 appeared on her record from PetSmart for, because she left less than two years after receiving this training. And that ended up completely destroying her credit score. Like she said in a quote, PetSmart needs to come up with a better way for employees to become better groomers instead of trapping them with unfair debt. I had gotten my credit score up and now I have to start all over again. It's brought me back down to square one. I mean, we talk about why like university education, schools in general should be free. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and this is a really great example because this is just part of the job it's literally just part of the right. job and so therefore it should be paid for by the company who needs that job done just like we as a society need labor to happen we have to create things we then provide free education to make sure that anyone can like be trained to do stuff and and 
you know, better themselves. I mean, also for personal enrichment and recognizing people's humanity, but I mean, also for the economic purposes. And in this case, PetSmart is like, well, you know, I we've been trying to privatize education. Why don't we double privatize the education in our own company and charge workers for the training that they need to do the job at our facilities? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's wild. And unfortunately, like this is really just the latest, cause this is, this is not a new tactic. Like this is something that capitalist enterprises have been doing. I'm pretty much since capitalism began is, is trying to recapture as much of the wages, the meager shitty wages that they pay to their employees through fees and fines. I mean, like, you know, company towns, for like shackling workers with housing debt, mm-hmm. like forcing people to shop at company stores. I mean, that would the had the thing of putting workers in debt, having to pay for their own tools. That was a long, long practice in mining, uh, and uh, probably continues in some places. Currently, in in like certain food work, if you are you're not given enough to to survive or time to to deal with things at home, and you're expected to just buy the food that's at the company that you work at, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, we've, we've talked so many times about the way migrant workers get saddled with, with debt for uh, travel, just travel expenses to get to the job where they are making profits for the company. So yeah, it's, it's a long, long tactic of uh, just added, added layers of exploitation on top of the already central, you know, features of the economic system. And so this, you know, lawsuit is, is seeking to get restitution for the workers and to force PetSmart to end this practice. And this is filed in California where they ban, uh, the collection of training debt, unless the training is something that is primarily for personal benefit, which it's pretty obvious that this training is not. So, uh, I mean, never, I'm never going to put my faith in the United States, justice system to actually follow even their own laws. So I don't know. We'll see. PetSmart's a big company. They can afford a lot of lawyers. Mm -hmm. I I would bet they'll probably settle this though. Try and, you know, settle it quietly out of court and and maybe shift their practices around at least in California and States that have those sorts of laws. But I, I mean, look, ideally, hopefully this, they go to trial and they fucking destroy PetSmart because like these workers deserve every dime they can get back from this ridiculous level of exploitation. Absolutely. Uh, well, um, speaking of ridiculous levels of exploitation, I don't know. I guess that works for every article. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's talk every about every news story in America. Yeah. Let's talk <laughs> about the DC transit workers strike. So we have 200 DC area transit workers who are organized with amalgamated transit union 689 who hit the picket lines early Monday morning to demand that their employer TransDev, stop bargaining in bad faith and agree to a fair contract with better wages and benefits. of the union's membership voted in favor of a strike last month if no progress was made in bargaining, which I got to say, you can always count on uh, transit and transportation workers to to hit those incredibly high vote numbers. It seems like it's always 85 plus. 
Um, so Transdev, you may not have heard of, like I think most people have not heard of a lot of transportation companies, is a private contractor that operates Metro Transit for the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority. So like oh, many... I love outsourcing. Yeah, well, like many things, it's like, okay, so we have this public utility for transportation and it's administered by a private company. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the workers who are striking uh, include paratransit drivers, dispatchers, maintenance workers, and road supervisors. They're protesting that Transdev has been hiring workers outside the D.C. area for $20 an hour, but refuses to pay D.C. workers the same. Like so many other companies, Transdev has also been purposefully short-staffing in order to maximize profits. So this is just a soup of everything we always see on their show. Well, and just to add to the, you know ways in which this strike, you know, fits so many checks, so many of the boxes uh-huh. for things we see here. The fact that they won't pay these workers $20 an hour, but will pay workers outside the area. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily have direct evidence, but I think it's probably safe to say there's a racial component to that because a very large percentage of these workers are black. And I think it's pretty likely that plays a role in, in trans devs feeling that, Oh, we can exploit these people even more. Mm -hmm. So like, and, and workers have pointed out like that compared to before the pandemic staffing at their dispatch center is down a hundred people. Like that's wild. Like they, that, cause it's like, yeah, maybe if you said like the beginning of last year, that, okay, not as many people are riding the bus because, you know, people are still taking the pandemic seriously and, and people are still sometimes able to work from home. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the this country, st- the government stopped taking the virus seriously. So people are riding the bus. So this is yet another case of a company taking advantage of the pandemic to then to slash their labor force and overwork their own, you know, members, like to the point that many of these ATU members have had to work 50 hours a week or more just to keep up with the pace of work due to the fact that Transdev won't hire, you know, the people they need to properly staff their their company. I mean, this is that's classic, honestly, just to, you know, we have the ability to intensify. We can get one person to do the, the job of you know, one and a quarter people, one and a half people. I mean, that is the classic tactic of labor intensification that we've talked about so many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then there's, Absolutely. there's another dimension to this as well, which is that part of what these workers are striking for is that they want to roll back the privatization of public transit at their garage. So uh, WMATA currently contracts out most services to private companies. But in 2019, workers went on strike at another Transdev operated garage for nearly three months and forced them to remove uh, the contractors and return to operating in house. So I think there's a it's really really interesting that these these workers are so so clearly demonstrating their knowledge that like this privatization is not good for anybody except for the executives of the companies that come in and privatize these services yeah i mean we can see some pretty obvious parallels i think with you know the uh, the rail workers in the uk who have pointed out similar things. They're mm-hmm. like, look, you're telling us you can't give us a fair wage. Meanwhile, this private company is taking a public service and taking huge profits out of it. This is bullshit. Let's go back to this being a publicly owned system. So, I mean, yeah, I think it's awesome that the workers are pointing that out and have that as kind of like a, a strike stretch goal. Like if, if their, their immediate demands aren't met and the strike goes on for a while, basically to be like, look, this company 
cannot be trusted. They will not bargain in good faith. They will not operate this, uh, this, you know, dispatch site with the proper number of employees. You got to bring this back to being publicly controlled. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's pretty awesome. Like on last Tuesday after they, this was after 24 hours on strike, uh, the union and Transdev went back to the bargaining table with the idea of like, look, Hey, we showed you we're actually willing to go on strike. We shut down the buses for a day. Now do you maybe want to listen to our demands? And instead, the bargaining meeting only actually lasted 15 minutes because Transdev just got to the table and said, yeah, we're not listening to any of your demands. We are, we're, we're sticking with our previous offers. <laughs> and it's the way that they usually do this is like, all right, so here's our newest uh, version of the contract and they push it across the table. And then you look at it and you're like, literally nothing has changed in here. And they're yeah. like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so like the union came out and said, We now know the company had never had any intention of bargaining seriously. It strung us along and waited until our contract expired and then immediately charged to changed all of its proposals to insulting low ball one year agreements. And so, you know, Transdev and W the WMATA, I think is, is how you you, uh, like say that Mm -hmm. uh, abbreviation have said, Oh, we've got plans in place to minimize the impact of the strike, which first off, I don't want my public transit authority to have plans in place to, if your plan to mitigate the strike, isn't agreeing to the the workers workers demands, right? Then you shouldn't have that plan. (laughs) Like I get why the private company has it. Of course they do like they're capitalists, but like the idea that WMATA is just going to work hand in glove with them. I'm not surprised by this, but it's still really shitty to see like this, this, what should be, you know, a public, more or less like a utility like this this public service and they're just like yeah we're we're totally on board with helping transdev you know bring in replacements and reroute buses so that we can try and break the strike it's disgraceful i mean the idea that that's this is how the erosion of of the actual fabric of our society happens through this privatization and what exactly the repercussions of that privatization is and i mean the union sees this exactly i mean the company they said uh this is a company that has category has that is categorically uninterested in doing what is right for transit workers and riders transdev's only interest is to skim public money into their pockets by underpaying their workers and that i mean 100 percent correct yeah yep (laughs) couldn't be more correct yeah. So, and I've, I've been like trying to follow their Twitter as their strikes been on. I think, yeah, they're, they're now on day eight today and they're out there in this really awful heat <laughs> that we've had on, on the, on the East coast recently. So solidarity with these workers and they've got the track record of beating these companies before. So I would not, I, I think there's a good chance ATU wins this strike. So if you're in the DC area and you have an opportunity uh, maybe show up to the picket line, show your solidarity. Yeah. Well, speaking of being 100% correct, uh, we're going to move to our our weekly segment on Starbucks where we have seen even more repression. I mean, I think, feel like I almost do that same segue every single time. So Starbucks has done more repression, but we've also yeah. seen more wins. Yeah, I keep thinking, well, now they must have exhausted the different tactics they're going to use in their scorched earth war on their own employees. And every week they come up with some new bullshit to 
to, to throw at their workers. So like this week we had a couple of interesting stories that, uh, with workers marching on their boss. Uh, and so one, uh, workers in at the Willow lawn store in Richmond, Virginia did a March on the boss on August 1st to demand answers as to why the workers were made to work alongside an accused rapist without being told about it. And so, I mean, that's, you know, a pretty serious demand. And I think that's a, like, you know, you find that out uh, like third hand, that is something I would want an answer to. Mm-hmm. And so management's response was to refuse to listen to them, to get up and leave the store. Like the workers actually like recorded this for TikTok. And the manager like won't even listen to them. Won't even just sit there, not saying anything, listen to them and say, we hear you, we see you, but no, like that. She literally just packs up her stuff and walks out of the, the building, literally ran away from the workers. That's insane. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's ridiculous, but even more ridiculous is uh, the yeah, workers at the Anderson, wild. South Carolina store who had previously won their union in, an, in a unanimous vote held a march on the boss to demand their hours be returned to normal after they had been slashed as part of the company's retaliation campaign. And the store manager called the police on the workers and is now pressing kidnapping and assault <laughs> charges against the workers. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, you'd be a bigger baby. I dare you. (laughs) Yeah. It, some of the pictures of this, they, they were, uh, thankfully the workers recorded all this, uh, because it, I mean, it's already a ludicrous assertion, even without video or audio evidence. But when you listen to the recording of it and you see the pictures from it, it's just even more like the idea that, oh, well, all my employees came together and they said they wanted the same thing at the same time. And I, I was scared. I, I, I literally expected to see a quote from this manager being like, I, I feared for my life. And that's why I had to tactically deploy a weapon against the, the violent, uh, you know, workers or something. Because it's, it's the whole thing just set, reminds me of like, you know, the bullshit you hear from a cop whenever they murder somebody. Like this idea that, taking collective action to make a demand is kidnapping. And if that wasn't bad enough, like this manager doing that, like doing that on their own and trying to like press charges against these workers would be bad enough. But the company is playing right along with it. They've suspended the staff of the entire store, banned them from entering any Starbucks location, meaning they can't pick up hours at other stores and have been refusing to answer questions to the workers as to like, why are we suspended? Why are you supporting these ludicrous charges? Because in the in the recordings they made and in the pictures of it, and I think there's a video out there, you can see they present their demands and the 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 manager is just like, Well, can I leave? And they're just like, Yes. <laughs> and then she shoves past them and runs out the door. It's like, how is that kidnapping? How is that assault? If anything, you assaulted the workers. Yeah, well, and it's also like, can I leave? It sounds like nobody ever indicated to you that you weren't free to go. Also, yeah. they're not cops. <laughs> they're employees. Like nobody 
I, this is just so, so insane. And in, in it stinks of like trying to criminalize union activity. Like this is very much what we saw with the warrior met thing. This is very much what we saw with the, the gig work legislation. Uh, it just seems like there's a big through line happening right now where it's like corporate and bourgeois political interests are getting together and they're saying like, "Mm, what if these workers organizations were not legal anymore? Yeah, like they're basically coming together and be like, why do we have to put up with this? Right. Like that that's like the whole tone I just get from this this whole thing and really any interview you, we see with like Howard Schultz on this topic. And so, yeah, it's r- just completely ridiculous. And it's one of those things where I would love to be able to say there's a mountain of evidence and these charges are just going to get thrown out as ludicrous nonsense because that's what they are. But this is America, and this happened in this in, in in not only in America in South Carolina, which I believe has the lowest union rate in the country. So who knows? Maybe they'll find a sympathetic like judge who was grown in a vat at the Federalist Society who does think that the existence of unions is like a, a assault. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah, <laughs> it's I, I crazy. Mean, I I hope not. Um, but I mean, I guess in continuing the retaliation at the Elmwood store in Buffalo, where the union drive started has continued this week with management unilaterally changing the store's opening time from seven to four 30 in the morning without bargaining with the union. Uh, the company has also fired a worker who had been the, been in the store for 13 years this week in retaliation for their support of the union. I mean, the reason for this firing was uh, for a for closing the lobby of their store when managemently when management purposefully understaffed uh, the the location uh, and basically leaving not enough workers to even run the store, which I am incredibly sympathetic for because I've told this story on the the show many times. But the day before I was fired, I was literally understaffed on purpose, and I mean, really, if if I had, you know, done had more organization, if the union had been there, we maybe would have been able to actually shut it down at that point. But like that, I mean, this just makes perfect sense to me that this retaliation of understaffing the stores must be met with a response of this is understaffed. We can't work this. Yeah. I mean, this is why the increase and the movement of the unionized stores to strike over these sorts of things is so important because if the stores aren't shut down over this, they're just going to be able to keep doing this. Cause like the NLRB has filed what the, like the most charges against one company like ever. And yet, I mean, what has been the result of that? Not really much of anything. And so like there is a GoFundMe um, for the worker at the Elmwood store who was recently fired. So I will make sure to put that in the show notes and that brings it, I, I saw more perfect union has been tracking these. That brings it to at least 70 workers across the country who have been illegally fired in retaliation for union organizing at Starbucks this year. And we did learn another piece of information though, that fits this pattern or this, this week when it was revealed that a couple of months ago, Starbucks hired a new manager of global intelligence for retail operations. Huh? Which is, you know, kind of an ominous sounding title, especially when you find out who it is. This is a person named Amanda Stanfill, who is a six-year veteran of the CIA. Oh. (laughs) 
who then left the CIA to go work for the Pinkertons and is now basically the manager of union busting for Starbucks. So uh, if you ever needed a better reason to check out our series on the history of the repressive state apparatus in the United States, (laughs) this is right in line with all of that. Yeah, (laughs) it's... I mean, like, imagine the, I, th- I imagine the surveillance and infiltration tactics are going to be ramped up. There is going to be friends of upper management who are convinced to come in at barista level and, and disrupt the union and, and, and all sorts of things like that. I mean, I, I hope that also the workers are studying this history uh, because it should be pretty clear that there are going to the, the, the class war is heating up folks. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, speaking of that, like, as we said, you know, strikes have continued and specifically the strike at the 874 Com Ave store in Boston has now hit over three weeks and (laughs) the Starbucks seems to be like struggling to figure out how to respond. Like they, they tried to bring in scabs, but the picket line prevented them from opening the store. Uh, the, they actually called the police to the picket line on Monday, August 8th. And, and asked them to watch the store because the workers were going to steal their patio furniture. That was literally <laughs> what the thing was. About. So they had, they brought in some scabs to remove the patio furniture from in front of the store so that the, the striking workers who had been on strike for three weeks and hadn't done anything were suddenly going to steal the furniture. That's yeah, ridiculous. So That's insane. It's wild. I mean, just another way that because this and the, but the thing is though it's like the fact that the 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 I mean this shouldn't be surprising but it's just like the the company's just like yeah I'll just get on my direct line to the police and be like hey go down and do the thing that your job actually is not that bullshit protected serve stuff we have written on your car like I mean this is what we see at every strike with the cops but the workers have stayed strong they're still on strike they have still kept the store shut and they've actually been seeing a lot of community support which is great because I know that like. Uh, the Boston PSL has been out there supporting them. Boston DSA has been out there a bunch of like lots of different community groups. Uh, like, so it's been good to see like the, the, the amount of support and the fact that they've been able to coordinate like one day or, or short couple of day strikes with other stores in the Boston area at the same time. So this is, I mean, this is the sort of stuff that's going to take to, to fight back against the union busting. And it's been really great to see that like, Cause I think there's some people who have thought that like, well, the Starbucks workers United thing, they're up against such a big company and, and yeah, they've won a bunch of victories, but they're all little individual stores. It's only 3% of the company's stores. How are they going to be able to fight back against this? But I'm like, I don't know. They're employing all the tactics to fight back against this that I think anybody who's read, you know, any labor history would recommend. I think mm-hmm. that the workers are showing that they know what it's going to take to fight back and, and win a contract. Yeah, including continuing organizing as That's they right. have gotten more wins this past week uh, in Pittsburgh, San Antonio, uh, in, in Niskayuna, New York, and two stores in Los Angeles, totaling now 212 unionized stores. So, yeah. I mean, like, we are are really, really optimistic about the power of this union i mean that is that is a, a huge number of stores and we're we're very glad to you know do our best to show solidarity and we hope that you show solidarity with them if you can by supporting their worker funds but absolutely uh i guess now without further ado 
we will move to the meme review. That's right, folks. After, you know, story after story of horrible capitalist exploitation, now we've got goofy pictures with text on them. All right. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So So this first one, this is a very basic impact font, top text, bottom text meme. Your your classic. (laughs) But it's... I feel like this is very much a like working class meme where you've got a guy on like a typical, like a, probably like a building a house or whatever. And he's got a ladder and his like leg is in like up on the second rung while he's laying on the floor and it's captioned when you're tired, nap at the bottom of your ladder. If you get caught, the boss will think you fell. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you're always trying to share these strategies of of how to get away with with getting your surplus value back. And That's one of right. them is by uh, just not working and having a good excuse at the time. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, look, people talk about time theft. All that is is surplus value reclamation. That's right. Yeah. And then speaking of that, our next one is just some guy walking out of a building putting on sunglasses. And this is another text meme over that photo where it says, after work stats. Uh, And then there's a a list here. It says, zero assignments done, 27 unopened emails, 11 missed calls, three hour lunch, six, (laughs) I hate my jobs. And just like... Yeah, Yeah, I love the, 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 like, 11 missed calls because that was something that, like at my old job, like when I was getting ready to quit and I was just like, well, I'm just not going to do any work. Cause like, what are they going to do? Fire me. I'm, I'm going to quit. So who cares? Right. So I would just never pick up my phone. <laughs> and it just eventually my supervisor would like come over and be like, Hey, did you see you had a call from this person? Be like, oh, oh, I didn't notice. Sorry. I'll get right. I'll on get that. back to yeah. them. <laughs> I mean, uh, speaking of the amount of effort you're willing to put towards something, our next meme is right on that topic. It's the typical uh, guy ready to box, and it says, okay, I'm going to get a new job. And then he's sitting down drinking a bottle of water. It says, damn, ad cover letter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were talking about this the other day. I Screw cover letters. like They're dumb. I, yeah, like, I, we're already asking for a resume, and you're already going to do an interview. So... What's the point of the cover letter? Like, it, it doesn't if make it the was, interview shorter. Right. That's the thing. Because you're just going to ask me all the same stuff in the interview that you're asking me to put in the letter, no matter how well I explain it in the letter. So don't really understand what the purpose of the cover letter is. Yeah. And then the next one is like an image from one of those like indie games where it like, but it's like really low graphics, black and white. Yeah. I think this is from, um, world of horror. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah, cause there's like blood coming out of, un- mm-hmm. out of underneath one of the doors and, and it's like of this apartment complex. You can see the stairs going up and down on the left and it says the best rent control is abolishing landlords. And that's, that's correct. Very true. <laughs> hey, if there's nobody there stealing your money every every week or every month just because they happen to have enough capital to own the place where you live, no reason for the rent to go up. So seems like a pretty simple solution to me. Yeah. And then the last one, I, you know, we do so many of these memes. I feel like maybe we did this one before, but it's so good. It's, it's worth doing again. Hell yeah. So this is a pink wug comic strip 
Uh, are these edited or just Pinkwog just have good politics? I think we went through this once and determined but that I they just have is, good politics. Yeah, I think this is the original. Nice. Uh, yeah, so it says if you take a break and it shows uh, a little worker uh, wug standing over by a sign and then it says it's your problem and they have their, their stuff in a cardboard box as if they are, they are being fired. And then it says if everyone takes a break and it just has a bunch of little pink wugs sleeping on packages on the, uh, on the package line, it says it's their problem. And then you have the little capitalist uh, bird app logo looking at big line go down and it's making him very, very sad <laughs> and nervous <laughs> critically. Yeah, I, very much correct. I I like seeing these very cute memes go through my feed. I I just I just enjoy, you know, it it's uh very apt to how I'm feeling and you know my, what I believe and then also it's cute. It's just all around good. Um but That's right. Well, I guess with that we will uh wrap the episode and uh we want to thank everybody who supports the show and you for listening. Uh, if you would like to get access to the overtime episodes that we've been doing, we just finished the third part of our rank and file series. So you can learn more about that by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash work stoppage and giving us $5 a month. If you can't afford to do that, jump in the discord message, one of the admins, we would be happy to hook you up with it. Also, one other way you can support us is by writing a review somewhere, anywhere. Yeah, anywhere. Uh, jump in the Discord <laughs> and follow John at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table, which I will remind people I am on now. And as always, Labor Peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity out there. Solidarity, everybody. 